today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. According to recent data compiled by Zucasa, Hamilton is nowhere near the top of the list when it comes to the least affordable housing markets in Ontario. And what's even more surprising is that Toronto is not at the top either. That honor goes to the suburb of Richmond Hill, where locals earning the median household income of just over $88,000 would find themselves a whopping 47, nearly 48 grand short to purchase a home at the average price of $999,311 as of last month. The report shows that Hamilton is the 11th most unaffordable housing market in this province, with an average home price at $501,000, 73, uh, and residents needing an average income of $68,351. So with the actual median household income in this city being $69,024, that gap is only $673. Let's bring in Penelope Graham, Managing Editor at Zucasa, and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Penelope, good afternoon. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, How was this list compiled? What did you guys do? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about how affordable a housing market is, most people invariably think of the average price there. And that is an important metric. But the real test is income. So whether or not local residents are earning enough to afford a house at the average price and also carry that resulting mortgage. Um, So we wanted to see where in Ontario this was most feasible and where it wasn't. Uh, So what we did is we took the average home price in 28 Ontario markets and then we calculated um, just the minimum income that you would need to earn as a household to afford that average home price. And then we compared it to the actual median incomes earned in those regions uh, to see if there was an income gap or an income surplus in some of these markets. And so what did you find? So we found uh, for the top five least affordable, which all fall within the GTA, half of prospective home buyers uh, would not be able to afford a home at the average price. And they would be at an income gap between 6000 to a whopping 48000 short uh, for the average home price. So perhaps it doesn't come as much of a surprise that the greater Toronto area is not very affordable for real estate. Um, but there you have it. That illustrates uh, just what the income gap is for those prospective home buyers. That top five list, certainly um, uh, not too surprising. Richmond Hill, Toronto, Vaughan, Markham, and Oakville in there as well mm-hmm. with an average home price of over a million dollars. The only one on the list that's over uh, one million. What was mm-hmm. what was the uh, perhaps least surprising that, that you guys figured that, uh, yeah, it's, it's towards the bottom or it, it's where it should be? So in terms of Toronto um, not ranking as the top, um, so one of the reasons behind that is Toronto has a more diverse mix of housing types. So Richmond Hill, which topped the list as the least affordable, which some people were surprised by, the majority of housing that's selling there tend to be detached homes, higher-priced homes, and that's going to skew the average home price higher. So even though Toronto had a slightly lower average home price at uh, just over $780,000, the median incomes there weren't enough to offset that. And uh, that's why it's ranking in second compared to Richmond Hill. Of the 28 communities on this list, uh, the top Mm -hmm. nine or nine of them are in the negative 
uh, category in terms of the gap between the required uh, income and the average home price. Were you surprised mm-hmm, that there were correct. nine on that list? So we we did find that nine uh, was a higher number. However, the majority of them are located in the greater Toronto area. And uh, we do perceive that those areas are a little bit more on the expensive side. Um, however, on the flip side, there were a number of excellent and affordable options for home buyers. And um, as you had mentioned, Hamilton, while it is ranking 11th on our list, Comparatively to some of the other major urban centers around it, it offers really great value. Uh, so we've got an average home price that's still under $500,000 and a median income that well supports uh, that home price. So, you know, when you factor in how vibrant of a community it is and for some the proximity to Toronto, um, we think that it's, it's really well attractively positioned on the ranking. Uh, other communities that fall into that category similar to Hamilton would be other nearby communities like Kitchener, the Niagara region, Brantford, Milton, Guelph, uh, even Waterloo at 24. That's correct, yeah. So Waterloo actually rounds out our top five uh, least expensive market. So these are the markets where you're going to have the best home affordability. And uh, there's some interesting factors at play in Waterloo. So it's, uh, as we know, um, a stronghold for post-secondary institutions. It's a strong, uh, what we call eds and meds economic um, environment. So you've got a healthy median income of over $80,000, yet the average home price is still under 500 k um, so all of that combined is positioning it really attractively as an affordable option. We're chatting with uh, Penelope Graham, Managing Editor at Zucasa. Zucasa has compiled a list of the uh, most affordable and, I-, I guess, least affordable housing markets in Ontario. Richmond Hill at number one, Toronto at two, Vaughan three, Markham four, Oakville five, Burlington at number six. At number ten, to me, this is the biggest surprise because I'm not sure what's going on in Peterborough, but Peterborough is at number ten. Why is that? So the, the factors that are at play at Peterborough, even though it has a relatively lower average home price, uh, clocks in just at over uh, $420,000. Um, the median income is only just over $58,000. Um, so that's not to say that it's not within the realm of affordability. Home buyers in that market are still seeing an income surplus of just over 600 bucks. They're not in the hole if they're trying to buy the average home. Um, but because incomes are slightly lower, that's not enough to offset even the relative home price. So all of these factors combine together to determine where a market's going to rank on our, our affordability list. Another surprise to me would be Ottawa, which has a, a huge income surplus of well over $25,000. Mm-hmm. So Ottawa is um, a rapidly heating market. It's becoming really popular um, because it has detached homes at a relatively affordable price. So you're seeing a lot of people making the trek out there uh, to purchase this relatively affordable real estate. And it also has a really strong job market. There's a lot of government jobs in Ottawa. You have the opportunity to make a really decent income. So um, the the offset there is you've got an average home price that's under $500,000 and a strong median income. So that's going to make it quite an affordable market. Uh, we didn't chat too much about Burlington. It's right next to Oakville, and it's uh, mm-hmm. right next to Hamilton as well. So wh- why is Burlington at number six and not higher or lower on the list? So the reason behind Burlington's ranking is because it does have a, um, 
a relatively high average home price at uh, just over $760,000. And so the median income, which is just over $90,000, is not enough to offset that. So we're looking at a gap of about eleven k if you're trying to buy the average home price there. Have these rankings changed year over year, and do they change month to month a lot? So in terms of the incomes that we tracked, those are reported by Statistics Canada. So they're based on the most recent census. However, the home values, the home prices are going to fluctuate month to month because real estate conditions change on a monthly basis. Um, So in terms of the GTA as a whole, uh, we are looking at relatively flat price growth. Things haven't changed too drastically from the same time last year. Um, but we do know that over the space of 2017, we had a lot of new policies coming into play. There was the Ontario Fair Housing Plan, and we saw the market take a bit of a dip and then climb back up uh, to, you know, you know, status quo where it's at today. So um, while uh, you were saying it's, it's about the same year over year, uh, there has been some fluctuation, uh, you know, in the, the near term that would have changed this ranking. But this is where we're at today, and it's pretty similar to the 2017 picture. The mortgage stress test would have had uh, a minor impact as well, I understand. Yeah, that's correct. So what happened with the mortgage stress test is it made the qualification hurdles to get a mortgage higher. Uh, and that essentially means that people are qualifying for smaller mortgage amounts. And that's going to impact the amount of house that they can afford. Uh, So that all comes into play in terms of supply and demand factors in the market. But all of the most recent data is pointing to, you know, recovery. Buyers are overcoming this hurdle and they're starting to return to the market. And sellers are starting to return to the market as well. So we're seeing that confidence come back. Uh, Penelope, have you done a national look and and how would Ontario's uh, most or or least affordable cities rank in terms of a, a, a national scope? Mm-hmm. So funny you should say that. Uh, we have done a similar study in Vancouver, which is very widely perceived to be the most expensive housing market in all of the nation. And what we found there, uh, the income gaps in some of the most expensive markets there were, this is going to be a shocking number, upwards of $400,000 compared to yeah, compared to the, you know, the $47,000 income gap uh, in Richmond Hill, which, you know, isn't anything to sneeze at. But um, when you put it into that perspective, in terms of the realm of affordability, that's how much further off Vancouver is than the greater Toronto area. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of affordable options in Ontario, we found that there was a greater proportion of, of markets that do fall within that realm of affordability. Um so that's, you know, a piece of positive news that Ontario home buyers can take away. <laughs> uh, Penelope, appreciate the time and uh, the analysis on these numbers. Great job. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Penelope Graham, Managing Editor at Zucasa, uh, compiling a list of the uh, most and uh, least affordable housing markets in Ontario. Richmond Hill at number one, so it is the least affordable housing market. Toronto, Vaughan, Markham, Oakville, Burlington round out the top six. Hamilton is 11th on this list. Food for thought. Uh, by the way, uh, last on the list as the most affordable city, in terms of at least the top 28, uh, Thunder Bay with a uh, income surplus gap uh, in the positive, $35,000. Sudbury at 27, Ottawa 26, Whitby 25, Waterloo at 20. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We all know that uh, the Netherlands is uh, bicycle mad. In fact, there are more bikes in the Netherlands than people. This is true. There's 23 million bicycles, at least that's the estimate. And there's 17 million people in the country. So they love their bikes. And not only that, they use them to get everywhere. But with a growing number of accidents involving cell phones and bicycles, the government of the Netherlands is starting next July banning the use of all but hands-free devices while people cycle. Is that something that the city of Hamilton should be looking at? Let's bring in Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Ryan, how are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. Um, I guess it's, uh, with accidents on the rise in the Netherlands, it's no surprise that they're looking at this ban, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, distracted driving, distracted cycling uh, is on the increase everywhere, uh, mainly because we all have these uh, addiction devices in our pockets and we can't seem to leave them in there when we're supposed to be paying attention to what we're doing. <laughs> we always got to check them, no matter where we are. <laughs> yeah, and so there's there's a sort of a conflict between um, you know the act of, of of driving a car, you know, and and uh, and to an extent as well of riding a bike, and uh, you know also trying to pay attention to you know smartphones, which are uh, extremely attention grabbing. You know, it's very hard to pay attention to what's going on around you when you're staring at that little screen. Uh, it's extremely dangerous when you're in a car because you're operating a large uh, steel, uh, you know. Uh, engine power device that can travel at you know 60 80 100 120 kilometers an hour and has the capacity to um you know crush human bodies when it when it uh, bangs into them uh similarly with bicycles you know the the kinetic energy um is is much smaller but you can still get seriously injured if you crash a bike you can still seriously hurt somebody if you crash into them and so there's a, a straightforward argument i think for um you know having the law reflect that where you know when you're operating a vehicle um, you should be paying attention to what's happening around you and not staring at your phone. According to the Dutch Road Safety Organization, it says a smartphone involved in one of five bike accidents involving young people, which is very disturbing. Are, are, are we seeing this problem? I'll call it a problem. Are we seeing this problem here in the city? Are people riding their bikes, talking on their phones, or maybe even texting on their phones while they're doing so and getting into accidents or getting hurt? Well, I mean, I don't have any uh, any really strong data on that. Certainly, the, uh, the the bicycle collisions that I'm aware of that have happened in the past, say, couple of years, um, the police reports haven't specifically mentioned that the person riding the bike was using their phone while they were doing it. But we have to remember also that, that the Netherlands, you know, about 40 years ago, they decided that they wanted to prioritize cycling as as a viable and effective way of getting around. So they spent the last 40 years uh, building out a really impressive infrastructure of cycling, you know, which has led to very, very high rates of adoption there. Here in Hamilton, you know, we sort of, we, we, we wring our hands and we put a little bit of a bike lane in here and then we don't do anything for a couple of years and then we put in a little bit of a bike lane there. So the rate of cycling is far lower here than it is in the, in the Netherlands. So by sheer numbers, there just aren't that many people regularly riding bikes right now where you're going to see uh, sort of a distracted cycling uh, contributor really start to show up in large numbers. In saying that, do you, do you think that Hamilton cyclists would be adverse to this type of law or bylaw, whatever it turns out to be? 
Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, my understanding would be that this would probably have to come from the province rather than the city. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I looked through the Highway Traffic Act and specifically the section banning handheld devices, and it specifies that while it, driving a motor vehicle, it's illegal to use a handheld device. Uh, a bicycle is a vehicle, but it's not a motor vehicle. So I'm not sure that it's actually illegal to do it right now, but I think it's reasonable to say that it should be. But do you think cyclists would be up in arms if this came to be? I don't think so. I mean, it seems like a pretty reasonable prohibition against a dangerous activity. And you know what? There's been talk about pedestrians and cell phone use and, you know, walking with their heads down, especially uh, near crosswalks. We've been having that debate. And uh, I think it's only a matter of time before, you know, tickets are handed out to people who are walking across the street with, you know, their eyes glued to their screens. Now, what's interesting about that is that we do have some pretty decent um, data across North America for the past several years. And uh, there doesn't appear to be any correlation between pedestrian cell phone use and an increase in collisions and injuries. Uh, the, the increase in injuries is driven almost entirely by distracted driving. Hmm. So walking with a cell phone, as far as we can tell, the evidence doesn't suggest it's actually that dangerous, but partially because when you're walking, you're sort of moving along at about four or five kilometers an hour, right? You're not moving at a high rate of speed. The situation around you is not changing so dramatically that, um, you know, by glancing down, you know, if you're, you're driving in a car, you glance down at your screen for a couple of seconds, you've just gone, you know, a great distance down the road. Your circumstances around have completely changed. Now, having said that, I don't think it's a good idea to walk around staring at your screen, but I don't think the, the, uh, the, the physical risk is exactly the same. Sounds good, Ryan. Appreciate uh, the thoughts on this topic and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. Same to you. It's a pleasure. Ryan McGrail, uh, editor of Raise the Hammer, giving uh, his thoughts on uh, the Netherlands coming out with a new law next July that is uh, basically going to ban uh, cyclists from using all but hands-free devices while they're on their bikes. And again, uh, when we're talking about the Netherlands, we're talking about millions of people on bicycles. And I think this is a good idea. Because you have many more cyclists on the road there than you do here, for sure. Now, whether it's going to come to Hamilton or not, you know, that's a great debate. And I'm sure cyclists already feel somewhat penalized by the lack of bike lanes in the city. While motorists will say, heck, there are too many. There's a delicate balance that, uh, you know, we're trying to get to. And I don't think we're there yet because I'm anticipating more bike lanes on the way in this city. You know, the one at, um, what is it, Bay and King, and Bay and Main for that example, or for that uh, instance as well. You know, perfect example of the cohesion between motor vehicles and cyclists. And I think it took a little bit of time for the motorist to get used to the bicycle lane there. But once it's there for a little while, it just becomes habitual. Oh, yeah, there's the bike lane there. I got to... You know, let the bikes cross the street first, and then I can turn left onto King if I'm going that way. But banning cell phones while cycling here in uh, Hamilton, I'm not sure we're going to get there anytime soon. I think it's a good idea. I think any kind of distracted driving or cycling, uh, we should take out of the equation. We want to keep people safe. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tiger Cats are uh, hosting the BC Lions this Saturday afternoon after a wild ending to last Saturday's game in which in the wee hours of the morning, Ticats fans were deflated by how that game ended. So they're hoping for a much better result this weekend. And to that end, just a block away from Tim Hortons Field is where the ATU Hall is located, the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107 located down the street. Why are we talking about this? Well, many of Hamilton's mayoral candidates have agreed to participate in a meet-and-greet prior to Saturday's Ticats game at the ATU Hall, and it's being put on by the union representing HSR employees, the Amalgamated Transit Union. Eric Tuck is the president of the union, and he joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Eric, how are you? Very good, Rick. How are you this afternoon? Not too bad at all. So you're holding a meet-and-greet slash tailgate party this Saturday before the Ticats game from 1 to 4 p.m. and inviting the mayoral candidates down to, well, meet with people who are down there and talk about uh, the future of transit in this city, right? Yes, uh, the future of transit and whatever other issues they might want to raise with the uh, the candidates. Uh, we feel it's certainly transit is a hot-button issue uh, this election, so we thought it only appropriate that we host uh, a venue where the uh, public and the electorate can actually come and ask their questions. Uh, uh, why the meet-and-greet-slash-tailgate format? Is it just a little more casual and, and it may not get as heated as, say, uh, you know, a, a, a debate in a... Uh uh, a ballroom somewhere? Yes, so, so originally we were planning to uh, to organize a debate, uh, but uh, we thought, you know, with the time running out, uh, that this would be a better format. We were actually approached by one of the candidates uh, to rent our parking lot for the game. We thought, well, you know, we don't want to be seen as endorsing one over the other, so we thought, you know what, let's open it up to all the candidates. Uh, it's a perfect opportunity for uh, the Ticat fans that are going to the game to watch the Ticats hopefully beat the uh, the Lions this Saturday um, to com- come out and ask the important questions uh, around transit. And there's a lot of issues, uh, not just, the, you know, the main issue everyone's talking about is the LRT and the BRT, uh, but there's other issues around transit that I think are important as well. So what are those issues that you hope people bring up or, or you're going to bring up to them? Right. So, so the LRT, BRT uh, issue is something that uh, we've said all along. We believe the public needs to decide which way we go on that. Um, we we kind of took a step back and are not uh, persuading the public one way or the other. There are pluses and minuses on both sides of that uh, debate. So, and I think the uh, the candidates are doing a good job of articulating both sides of that that argument. But more importantly, we think uh, the whole issue of of transit going forward transit is the lifeblood of any city uh and with uh currently with the area rating is is one of the problems that have stunted uh the growth of transit in the city for some time and i think that that has to be addressed this election cycle are you surprised at all that lrt is still an election issue i mean the announcement's been made funding is rolling in plans are in place drawings are there uh yet it's it still kind of hangs in the balance yeah, I'm not surprised at all, uh, given certainly uh, the provincial election was uh, it was a hot-button issue with that. And with Doug Ford's win, him throwing out there that the billion dollars is still available to Hamilton to use as they see fit, I think, has regenerated that discussion. Uh, because now there, there are uh, candidates running for council and running for the mayor's seat. 
that are saying, hey, maybe we should be looking at alternatives uh, to the LRT. Uh, the BRT is another option, and, uh, you know, maybe half a, half a billion dollars for BRT and half a billion dollars for infrastructure to fix our roads is an option. That's something that's been toted around, and I think uh, it's worth examining. We're chatting with uh, Eric Tuck, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107 here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott today. Uh, are you of the opinion that LRT is still coming? Uh, I'm of the opinion that it could go either way, really. Uh, you know, it depends how much weight you put into uh, Doug Ford's promise. Uh, you know, it was an election promise, and now you're you're seeing that there may be some waffling on uh, how big the deficit is. So is that billion dollars still going to be available? Is that promise going to be met? Um, you know, the billion dollars for LRT was promised and, uh, the, that contract still held in the balance, uh, all because of the, uh, fact that it's going to be contracted out. And one of the things our union has been very firm on from day one is that if there's going to be an LRT or a BRT, uh, it has to be operated and maintained by our public transit system, which is through HSR. Um, we believe that transit should be kept public. It's a valuable asset. And, uh, you know, we, we're seeing some alarming uh, um, stuff coming out of the province right now about uploading TTC, which is very concerning for us. Any update on whether you guys will be, in fact, in the LRT uh, uh, buses, I guess, or, or uh, uh, rail cars, uh, or is so, that is so, that still up, up, up in the air? Yeah, so the last vote by council was that we will operate and maintain. Uh, there's still an operational uh, agreement that has to be signed. That's why this election is so critical, that we get uh, councillors and, and the mayor uh, to ensure that they commit to keeping transit public. And as long as they continue to hold that value, uh, we believe we can work on either system, as long as it is operated and maintained through the public transit system. Should be an interesting dynamic at this meet-and-greet slash tailgate party, uh, not necessarily from the mayoral candidate point of view, but from the people who are going to be coming to the ATU Hall on King Street between 1 and 4 on Saturday, because... Uh, you know, Tim Hortons Field is not on the LRT line, but certainly if the LRT is in fact built, people will probably use that to get to the stadium on game day uh, because it'll go all the way out to, to Eastgate Square. But then again, you do have Ticats fans who come from all over the city and all over the Golden Horseshoe to attend games. So you might have an interesting dynamic in terms of the debate and the thoughts that they bring to this event. Right. We're going to have, uh, you know, obviously uh, voters from all across the city. And I think that's why it's important that we don't just focus on the LRT, BRT debate. Uh, we also focus on the, the, the rest of the issues, which, as I said, the area rating. You know, you can build the best uh, uh, LRT or BRT system uh, in the city. But if you don't have the riders there, and we've got so many areas in our city right now that have no bus service or very limited bus service. When you look at all the growth that is taking place up in Binbrook, out in Glanbrook, uh, Flamborough, Waterdown, uh, and you look at the congestion on our highways every time there's an accident or something happened, uh, you know, the only way we're going to deal with these issues is to improve transit right across the city from one border to the next, uh, which means we have to invest all across the city. Uh, the elimination of area rating has to happen. Last question for you. How many uh, mayoral candidates have confirmed? 
So, so far we have, uh, I believe, seven candidates that have confirmed. Uh, certainly the, the front runners, uh, uh, Fred Eisenberger and Vito Zagro are going to be there. And I believe there's at least five others that have confirmed. And we're still getting the, uh, the odd call uh, inquiring, and they're trying to change the schedule so that they can attend. Well, it looks like the weather is going to hold up as well, so that's uh, some good news. Uh, good luck with the event. Very good, and thank you, Rick. Uh, always happy to talk about transit. Excellent. Eric Tuck, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107, uh, talking about to this Saturday's meet and greet slash tailgate party. If you do want to attend, you want to express your view on LRT or BRT or anything transit-related, uh, again, this event goes this Saturday before the Ticats game between 1 and 4, and who knows, there might be some goodies up for grabs in terms of uh, beverages and food. Uh, th- there is really wherever you go around Tim Hortons Field and in Tim Hortons Field. Um, but this should be interesting to see what people bring to the table and uh, how the mayoral candidates respond to questions uh, or uh, you know ideas from, from other people, other citizens. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the news broke yesterday afternoon that Bill Cosby is going to prison and is serving the first full day of his sentence at a new state prison in the Philadelphia suburbs. The Department of Corrections provided details of Cosby's incarceration yesterday, uh, one day after the 81-year-old comedian was sentenced to three to ten years for sexual assault. He's being housed in a single cell near the infirmary, and the corrections secretary, an individual by the name of John Wetzel, says that the prison's long-term goal is to place Cosby in the general population under prison policy he'll be allowed phone calls and visits and will get a chance to exercise as well and wetzel says the prison is quote taking all of the necessary precautions to ensure the celebrities safety certainly yesterday's news um brought about a number of different reactions let's hear from some of the people involved in this trial he used his acting skills and that endearing uh, TV personality to win over his victims and then keep them silent about what he did to them. So now finally, Bill Cosby has been unmasked and we have seen the real man as he is headed off to prison. For decades, uh, the defendant has been able to hide his his true self and hide his crimes uh, using his fame and fortune. He's hidden behind a character, Dr. Cliff Huxtable. But it was fiction. Before Bill Cosby became a convicted felon, taken away in handcuffs to begin paying for his crimes, a lot of people believed that that's who he was. But we know otherwise. This has been a long journey to justice for all of the accusers, particularly for Andrea Constant and for her family. He knows that these are lies. They persecuted you're, Jesus, you're and look what happened. Not saying Mr. Cosby's Jesus, but we know what this country has done to black men for centuries. Well, let's bring in Jordan Donick. He's a criminal lawyer with Donick Law and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Jordan, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks uh, for coming on. Maybe we'll start off with your reaction to the sentence that uh, Mr. Cosby was given yesterday. So, I mean, the sentence... Um, it is, uh, I mean, it's high, right? I mean, it's the, for what happened. I mean, here in Canada, the sentencing regime is a lot different. Um, the sentencing regime in Canada may not always have a range. Uh, we see that in the U.S., a three- to ten-year range, whereas here in Canada, um, you generally don't have that type of sentencing. Um, so that's one thing that's interesting here. And then ultimately, it really could be 
up to a parole board or, or a hearing, essentially, after he served some time to determine how much time he, in fact, serves uh, before being released. So two things uh, from that is, what would a similar case here in Canada result in if this individual was found guilty up here? What would the range be or what would the years be? So I think they would be less if he was sentenced here in Canada. And, and it's just a simple different judicial system we have here. In Canada, generally, um, we are more lenient with people. We are less punitive. We're more about rehabilitation and reintegration, whereas in the U.S., um, they're really, their justice system is more focused on incarceration. So um, as to what the exact time he would serve here, I don't know, but I would take a bet that it would be less than three years in total. Three to ten years, why the range? What happens with those numbers? So essentially, American sentencing is a little bit different than here in Canada, and it will have, at times, a minimum and a maximum. Um, and the reason, I think, is, is so that it's fluid, right? So that they can see how he behaves, um, how he is perhaps in jail, uh, and then eventually apply for consideration to be released perhaps a bit sooner, somewhere in between, or of course, if things aren't going well, uh, near the end of the range, right? And we saw this with O.J. Simpson last year uh, when he had his parole hearing and he was uh, ultimately released around last summer. And that's ultimately decided by the parole board itself? So there, uh, at some point, he, him or his lawyer will be making an application for release, and that's correct. There's a, a tribunal in the U.S. Uh, that will determine... Uh, when, in fact, he's released. And there's a number of factors that go into that, right? They look at the, the nature of the crime. They look at criminal history. I mean, obviously, um, it doesn't look like Cosby has an extensive criminal record. Uh, but, you know, the crime is aggravating. There's all the factors the court and the judge mentioned about, you know, exploiting his celebrity status and all these things to get away with it, right? Those are aggravating. And that's why the sentence is reflected in, in, the, in the range provided by the judge. So that will all eventually be reconsidered, uh, likely by some form of parole board to determine, A, if he's released, and B, um, if he is released, with what conditions. His uh, defense team pointed to uh, his age, uh, Cosby's 81, also pointed to his blindness as well uh, in uh, relation to their ask, or the, the team's ask, of house arrest. That seemed, uh, at least according to the judge, way too lenient. Well, that's right, and, and that's his defense lawyer doing his job, or their job. Um, their job is to advocate for the client, and I mean... Um, and if someone has special needs, and that can be reflected in a certain type of sentence, obviously that's what we're supposed to do as lawyers. But I think you're right. The judge shot it down, and the judge felt that perhaps... Um, I think, too, you know, if you put yourself in the judge's position, right, I'm sure there would be a ton of pressure on this judge not to treat Cosby differently, right? If the judge agreed with the defense lawyers, uh, guaranteed there would be some kind of uproar and some kind of appeal essentially accusing probably the judge or the judicial process of basically just giving, uh, you know, this outcome or that type of sentence, house arrest, because it was Bill Cosby. Uh, also did not uh, offer Mr. Cosby any bail. I mean, he went straight to prison. Right, and, and that's interesting, too. Uh, we've seen that uh, here in Canada uh, with a couple high-profile cases where uh, people are, uh, you know, sentenced and they apply for bail uh, pending the appeal of the conviction or even perhaps the appeal of the sentence. And, and you're right, it's up to the judge to determine uh, whether in fact they'll be released pending that decision. And, and, and that's another you know, clear example of, I think, the stance this judge is taking with this guy. A day after Bill Cosby uh, was sentenced to uh, prison for three to ten years, we're chatting with uh, Jordan Donick, criminal lawyer with Donick Law, here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott. Um, what are, we do know that Bill Cosby plans to appeal. What are his options in that regard? 
So he's probably going to appeal everything he can appeal. Um, people with money and time have resources to do these things. And, and really, when you're in this guy's position and you have money and you have time to, for re- to, to deploy resources, why wouldn't you? So the question's really not going to be, what is he going to appeal? We know uh, he's going to appeal everything he can. The question, I think, is going to be how successful those appeals are, right? So, A, appealing the conviction can mean you're appealing the decision. You're appealing the finding of guilt. You're going to say there's a problem with how he, how he was convicted. Maybe a way the evidence came out, maybe some testimony. Who knows? That's something only his lawyer knows. And you can also, in certain circumstances, say, okay, you know what? I agree with the decision, but I don't agree with the sentence. The sentence is too harsh. So we can also see you know, perhaps an appeal there as well. And these appeals don't happen right away. And this is going to take this. There's a process to it. Right. There's a process to the appeal. Generally, if you're going to appeal at the higher levels of judicial proceedings, generally there has to be an error in law. So you can't just appeal and say, look, I didn't like the decision the judge made. I don't like the, you know, the, 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 the nature of the facts that were, de- that were determined. Generally, you have to to win an appeal, attack perhaps the process and prove that there's a, you know, a problem with the law, right? An error in law or reasoning. Um, and you're right, they take time, and that's why he applied for bail, right? Pending the conviction uh, appeal or, or perhaps for the sentencing. He's applying for bail because he knows there's going to be dead time uh, determining whether or not he's going to be successful. Another interesting uh, portion from yesterday's uh, sentencing hearing was uh, Bill Cosby given the opportunity to speak but declined to do so. Your thoughts on that? So, you know, that's always an interesting position for us as defense lawyers. Do you tell your client to say anything at a sentencing? You know, as a general rule, I'll recommend people give a uh, a statement if I know they're going to get a really lenient position. And the reason is, you know, you kind of want to convince the judge or give the judge that little extra push, right, to to, to side with your lawyer. Um, Why didn't he say anything? You know, it could be, uh, we don't know, right, we're not Bill Cosby, but... It certainly is interesting, right? I think he's probably upset with the outcome. He's probably upset with the conviction. Uh, maybe he is innocent. I don't know. We're not him. Um, so that could be, th- those things could be going through his head and reflected in that decision not to not to give a statement. Cosby's uh, the first celebrity of the Me Too era to be sent to prison. Uh, what does his sentence, his conviction, really mean for others accused, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world? Yeah, so... I mean, it means a couple things, right? It means, essentially, I think, um, that really nobody is, you know, uh, invincible, right? Nobody's completely immune to criminal prosecution. I think that's what it means at any level. Um, but we have to remember, you know, everyone's saying Bill Cosby's the first guy for the Me Too conviction. He's the first guy maybe in Hollywood. I can tell you there's uh, thousands more men, right, that are being prosecuted that don't get the attention of Bill Cosby. So it's really not just about a, a message to Hollywood. I mean, this is a message to, to all people, men and women. And the reality is um, um, this movement is leading to more people being charged and, and convicted. Obviously, if there's more people being charged, there's going to be more convictions, not just in Hollywood, but everywhere. Uh, do you mind if I ask you quickly about the, the Tory Stafford uh, situation? Uh, what's your uh, what what specifically? Well, basically, the the woman uh, accused in her murder, Terry Lynn McClintock, has been transferred from prison to a healing lodge in Saskatchewan. Ha- have we heard of this before? This seems to be the first instance that I've heard, and especially in a high profile case like this. Well, people can always apply for transfers, right, in institutions, and I think um, that's part of what Bill Cosby was trying to spin here, right? He was trying to to kind of spin his... So it's basically if the person's realized, okay, I'm not going to get out of trouble, 
I'm not going to get out of jail. Uh, how can I make my life easier, right? And, and certain institutions will treat offenders differently. And one's focused on healing or perhaps rehabilitation, I would think, would probably be more private. Uh, you, you wouldn't be in gen pop. You might get a bit more liberty. And, and at the end of the day, um, uh, you probably w- w- will have a better time serving your sentence, not just uh, for your own personal well-being and health, but you know, probably also for daily life. And I think that's the reason. Citizens would probably be up in arms about that, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone's up in their arms about uh, anything and everything they can, right, with, with the justice system, good or bad, right? And that's, I think, what we're seeing here, right? I mean, it's hard to please everyone, and that's, that's really what I think is, is important with Me Too. Um, you don't want to open the floodgates either and overcharge people, right? And this is the emphasis I make as a defense lawyer, because there are innocent people. There's always going to be innocent people that get charged, or get or have the finger pointed at them, right? And and a charge of sexual assault or sexual misconduct or whatever you want to call it um, ruins your life, even if you're innocent and even if you defeat the charge. So really, I think what this is all about is balancing everything. Obviously, we want um, victims to feel comfortable coming forward and to have you know predators prosecuted, but we also want to protect the rights of innocent people and remember that there's two sides to every story. Well said, Jordan. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Jordan Donick, a criminal lawyer, Donick Law, joining us here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, a prosecutor who tried Cosby in his sexual assault case is the comedian's chief accuser. Toronto's Andrea Constand uh, told her that uh, she was happy with his sentence. And a, a publicist on the other side of the coin, a publicist for Cosby, complained that the star's conviction and prison term stemmed from a racist and sexist justice system. Again, Cosby vowing to appeal his conviction as uh, the first celebrity trial of the Me Too era. And it will be interesting once the Harvey Weinsteins of the world do enter a, a trial system, what kind of sentence, what kind of, uh, well, first they would have to be convicted, but what kind of sentence upon conviction they would receive? Does Bill Cosby's 3-10 to 10 year sentence set the bar? Or in Weinstein's case or in others, is that bar a little too low? I'm sure the victims will definitely have their say in court with the victim impact statements and, uh, and whatnot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.